Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed as a podcast. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. They call me dead on arrival. That's unfortunate. Yes, I'm dead everywhere I go. That's not, uh, you should, you should take a nap if you're dead on your feet like that. <laughs> Uh, this I just, is I just go to a party and I kill it. That's all. Yeah, you go. Uh, so miserable. Thank you. Thank You're you. quite welcome. There was uh, James Acaster is a comedian who talks about how everyone's got like an icebreaker, mm-hmm. but you should also, when you're done with the conversation, freeze it over. <laughs> okay. You know, so it's like you, you break the ice with some like little piece of information, you have a conversation, and just when you're about to leave, you say, "Okay, I gotta go." Uh, death comes to us all, and they just sort of <laughs> walk away, Good ruin luck. the conversation. Okay. Good luck beating those charges. Uh, this is a podcast where we are, we send out a poll to all our listeners, mm-hmm. uh, and they get to select one of four films from a particular streaming service. That service that, changes every week. Yeah, the service is different every week, uh, all four of which one or the both of us haven't seen. Yep. And, we're getting uh, a fresh perspective from at least we, one critic. When one of those films invariably wins the poll, we talk, we watch it and we talk about it, don't yeah. we? Yes, we do. Ha ha! And what was our uh, streaming service this week? But Paramount Plus. Yes, the a, uh, the the uh, we mostly have Star Trekiest streaming mm-hmm. service uh, that we've they, got. They uh, they're they're putting all their eggs in the Star Trek basket yeah. right now, uh, and also Nickelodeon. But those are sort of like their two big. They got Nickelodeon. They got South Park. They got like a couple of original shows that apparently are pretty good. Uh, a lot of people make fun of Paramount Plus because they only have Star Trek. I put it to you that at least they have Star Trek. Mm. Peacock lost another billion dollars last year. <laughs> Peacock has nothing. You know what? You can laugh at Quibi all you like. Yeah, because this Pe- is a losing game for everybody. Qu- Qu- they didn't stick with Quibi and lose a billion dollars two years. Years in a row, did they? Just saying. Uh, but in any case, yeah, we went with we went with Paramount Plus, and the thing with Paramount Plus is, frankly, their selection kind of stinks. When, when it comes to feature films, yes, yeah, there's a, there's some good stuff there, but it's mostly stuff that we've seen. And when you get down into the nitty gritty of their library, it's not a very impressive slew of films. In fact, the, some of the films that were on our our picks or our options for the poll were public domain. Yeah, there's <laughs> what they have on Paramount Plus is. Uh, it's not just para, uh, public domain stuff. It's like it's all schlock. A it's lot like, of it's schlock. It's like bottom of, of the barrel kind of schlock. A lot of schlock. monster movies from the fifties kind of thing, and that's not a bad thing. No, of there, course there, it's not. There need, but, those things need to be available somewhere, but that's yeah. kind of all they got. I wish they would roll with that a little bit more. Say, so come on over to Paramount Plus. We got all the monster shit. We got all the that crap. All that crap from the fifties. Get yeah. together with friends, drink a lot, and watch you know the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. We're the something. sci-fi channel from the two thousands of streaming services. Buckle yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be uh, fine. Except, uh, except uh, what if the but, sci-fi channel actually had Star Trek reruns? Boom. Great. It, it, that, that's, <laughs> that's a good sell. That's <laughs> the sci-fi channel when oh, they were spelling it correctly. I, I would buy that. So anyway. Uh, so anyway, we put a bunch of films on the poll. And the one film that won is a film noir, mm-hmm. which is incredibly influential. It's very popular, critically acclaimed. It has an excellent premise. Oh, a brilliant premise that has been ripped off time and time again. And we'll talk about that in a second. And yet somehow I had never seen D.O.A. I had seen a film called DOA. With uh, Dennis Quaid? Uh, no, with Jamie Presley and Devin Aoki. It was oh. about... Oh, Dead or Alive. De- yeah, okay. it, was, it, was a, 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 it was a fight movie based on a video game. Yeah. That movie's a blast. That movie <laughs> is, a, is a low... Like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, They set the bar low, uh-huh. and they leaped over it. It's like, we're just going to have a bunch of attractive people kicking the crap out of each other? Yeah. That's it. And uh, 
I, I'm not too familiar with the games, but I do That's know about one, all there is to one the game. of the gimmicks of the games was they uh, like animated all of the characters in swimwear and they play volleyball. It's not a fighting game. It's a uh-huh. volleyball game. Well, that's one of the but versions it's the of the character, game, yeah. yeah. And low in the movie, they took time to have a volleyball tournament in the middle doing. of the fighting tournament. Well, one so. of the things with the DOA games is that uh, the... the, the um What's the, what's the most tactful way I can put this? They really put a lot of effort into boob physics. <laughs> so if people who were ample, amply chested uh, bounced around playing as, volleyball or kicking someone, uh, there was some real... Like throwing back and yeah. forth of, of certain body parts, I'm it was, sure. It was, it was if, if Russ Meyer made a fighting game. It, well, wouldn't, you know it wouldn't look entirely unlike DOA. Fine with that. As yeah. a concept, that's fine. Uh, that has nothing to do with the movie we're talking about today. No, uh, DOA from 1950... Uh, directed by a cinematographer, better, a man better known for a cin- being a cinematographer, Rudolf yeah. Mate. Uh, he shot uh, some films for Hitchcock. Um, you look up his, cinemat- his uh, cinematography, mm-hmm. uh, filmography, it's ample and impressive. He was nominated five years in a row. Yeah. For films and for classic like, films like The Foreign Correspondent, mm-hmm. Pride of the Yankees, the really incredible Humphrey Bogart he, thriller Sahara. He shot The Passion of Joan of Arc for Carl Dreyer. There you uh, go. He, he, he shot Vampire for, also for Carl also Dreyer, for Dreyer, which yeah. we've covered on one of our podcasts not that long ago. One of the I, most sublimely photographed films you'll ever see. Yeah, so he, this is the guy who knows what he's doing. This is not like some like mm-hmm. hack who just throws some shit together. Like he's actually a very, very. We also did he, uh, another movie he did. Uh, oh, wait, we didn't do this one. He did, he did a movie called When Worlds Collide, okay. uh, which is another uh, big sci-fi type epic. He did, uh, you may have seen Zack Snyder's 300. That's not the first time that story had been told on, on camera. Mm-hmm. It was also a 1962 film called The 300 Spartans, which is perfectly respectable. Yeah, And yeah, he had been shooting films since the teens, uh, directed a, like almost 30 movies as director, yeah. but... His films as director aren't as well known as DOA. DOA no. is sort of like his most celebrated movie. Yeah, and you and can it was see only why. His third film. Yeah, uh, DOA stars an actor named Edmund O'Brien, and uh, he's just kind of a sack of crap. He <laughs> well, that, that that's sort of he's yeah. he's supposed to be kind of a, an average man without yeah. some sort of. He's not morally upright, no, nor fact, is he a, a scumbag. He's just sort he's, of he's a... He's kind of a douche. What? Well, here's the deal. He's, a, he's, a, a bit. A he, bit. He, he's like an accountant. Yeah. He does like a lot of things like boring shit, like notarizing stuff and like authorizing bills of sale, that kind of thing. Uh, he's been dating a woman who works for him. She's totally into him, and he's like, gee, that's nice, and not really fully committing to it. And he has told her at the start of the film, watch out real fast. The start of the film is not the start of the film. The start of the film well, it's, it's is clearly flashback. the elevator pitch. The uh, the so elevator guy, pitch is a guy walks into a po- a guy walks into a police station a uh, police station almost a police station office <laughs> where the office police stationers work and he announces I'd like to report a murder. They say oh, yes, who's murdered? He says mine. Great pitch. <laughs> Great fun start to any story. Anyway, we go into a flashback. And, uh, yeah, he, he's been having a relationship with someone who he works with. She's way more into him than he is into her. He's told her he's taking a vacation for a few days just by himself, just to clear his head. She thinks that this means he is straying, leaving her, doesn't sure if he wants to be in the relationship. She's right. She goes from Los Angeles to San Francisco and books into a hotel where there's a whole bunch of wild, sexy parties. 
Yeah, well, he's he's not in Los Angeles. He's in like a, a small California town. Okay, it's, I thought it's he started like, it's in like Los Angeles. Billings or something. Anyway, I, I forgot the actual name. He of goes town, to San Francisco for Delhi, vacation, but he goes to San Francisco for vacation. And there's a bunch of sexy people having sexy work parties. Yeah, it's it's there's like some big work convention at the same hotel, so all the doors are open. Everybody's drinking and having a good time. People wander into his room to use the phone, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Everyone's flirting with him. It mm-hmm. seems like it's a really really good deal. Over the course of this evening, in which he's running around town from bar to bar, flirting yeah, yeah, with this yeah, person yeah. and that, he ends up going yeah going out on the town with. Some of these business people are just in his hotel. They're not even friends yeah. of his. He uh, he ends up waking up the next morning feeling incredibly sick. Mm-hmm. He goes to a doctor, and the doctor informs him, uh, you have been poisoned. It's too late to do anything. You have a couple of days, maybe a week to live. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. But it's, it's, it's a, it's a, he's been poisoned with something radioactive, and, yeah. and there's this dramatic... Oh, it's, it's a great a reveal. Wonderful science fiction movie conceit where they say, yeah, you've been poisoned with this. And he holds up a vial of it. And he's and like, I don't, I, don't buy, I don't believe you. And the guy turns off the light and the, the light, vial and glows. glows. It's like this evil <laughs> serum. This is like, I, I, this is almost like a, what, what's the Jason Statham movie where he's crank. poisoned? Crank. And he has to oh, it's very his, much crank. Crank, yeah. crank rips off DOA. Like, I didn't realize well, how much it ripped off DOA. A lot of movies rip off DOA. Yeah. yeah. So, like, so the, basically the premise of the movie is he's got to run around and figuring out who killed him and why. Before and, the poison gets to his brain. And you realize that there's kind of a lot of movies that have taken this premise either directly, like Crank, where the whole idea is Jason Statham has been poisoned, he will die, but the extra touch they added in the movie Crank, the first one of which is quite good, um, is he has to constantly keep his adrenaline up. So if he so, doesn't, sort of, ha- if, if it's high, yeah. it staves off the poison. A little so like, longer. if he doesn't have access to, say, hypodermic needle full of adrenaline, which he does have a few of, um, he's got to do something to mm. get his adrenaline up, and that means doing an increasingly crazy number of things, like things that shock him. So that yeah. is is that the one where he has sex on a horse race track? Or uh, no, that's the sequel. That's, okay, that's the sequel. And this one, he does have public sex. Uh, and this one, he like. Rides a motorcycle naked through Westwood. Uh, <laughs> he's like shocks himself with a defibrillator. Yeah, like it's no, all kinds of shit. None of that kind of fun stuff in DOA, no. but you know, a, a definite ticking clock. Yeah. And oh, another movie has, that ripped us off very recently: the uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead thriller Kate. Kate, which is okay. Um, it's not as good. No. Uh, no. There's a. I, I want Kate was sort of a I felt was like a response to the movie Jolt with Kate Beckinsale to mm. similar movies. Well, they came out like around the same time. Around the same time, so, no, but definitely not. But Kate, good double Kate, feature regardless. Uh, Jolt came out first, and Jolt yeah. is the superior film. Yeah, uh, but the. He, yeah, he begins investigating because he has he's an accountant. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have enemies. No. He, he's not like a mob guy or a criminal. Like he doesn't hasn't a yeah. he doesn't backstab anybody. Yeah, he's he's not f- kind to his girlfriend, yeah. so that's motivation and for you, her, perhaps. And you realize but, that based on the chaotic nature of the night beforehand, uh, this might have been an accident. He might have not mm-hmm. been the person that was intended to be murdered. He's got very little to go on and almost no time to do an investigation, and he's not a detective no he's so not good at this we are introduced to a slew of new characters very quickly yeah like the, all of these likely sp- suspects are being thrown at us and eventually he starts to put together uh some sort of plot that has to do with him actually being an accountant something he yeah. did as an accountant yeah and i don't want to say what it is but yeah. but just something something, something really he, banal he, yeah, something he did yeah. as an accountant he can, he can has prove something the ire of yeah, yeah. he has proof Proof of sale of uh, an illicit, something illicit. Yeah. And uh, that was enough to get yeah. a bad guy on his bad side. Yeah. And uh, he's got to figure out who it is. And once he figures out, like, 
what sort of crime ring it is. It's still like another dozen people he's got to narrow down. Yeah. What a great, wonderful ticking clock idea for a motion picture. It's just it's just an electric pitch. It's an electric pitch, and it, it goes a little bit further than the typical uh, Hitchcockian man accused plot. Yeah, where a man is wrongly accused of some crime and he's on run from the law, but he's just so he can prove himself rather than, you know, evade yeah. something that he's guilty of. Yeah, yeah, because... this guy's not guilty of anything. No, I mean, he's, uh, he's not a great boyfriend, but other than that, yeah, not really, like, yeah. Like, he didn't, he didn't commit some sort of horrible crime. Yeah. Other than just being kind of a dick. Yeah. Uh, as such, it's like, the, it's like fate crushed him. And the, yeah. the film I was reminded most of was Old Boy. I was thinking about yeah, Old Boy, uh, too. Yeah, the, yeah, the Park yeah. Park Chan-wook movie, uh, where... That's about a man who's swept off off the street randomly uh-huh. and locked in like a motel room like prison for years, like like over a decade. I think it was seven. Years, it's like seven, it's yes, a long ass. It's time. a long time. It's an unspeakably long time to be trapped in one room uh, right, without and, even knowing why. And nobody ever tell him tells him why he why he's there. He has a TV. Mm-hmm. They feed him under the door, and he's only in that room. Yeah. And then just as suddenly he's let out, mm-hmm. and he decides to start figuring out like. Well, he's told, he's told he has like a time limit. Basically, you have to figure right, out right. you have to figure out why we did this to mm. you, and you have a certain. So basically, now all of a sudden, he's trying to figure out who did I piss off. Mm. And what I love about Old Boy is that, and I and I I kind of like this about DOA, but there are other films that I think handle this even in a more strong way. The idea that nobody goes through life without affecting others and being affected by others. Uh-huh. The idea that it's impossible... This is something I wrestle with in like my sort of uh, anxiety mm-hmm. and my therapy. This idea that um, I'm terrified that when all is said and done, when I die, my effect on the world will be a net negative. Uh-huh. I'll have done more harm than good. I will not have made a left the world a better place than when I left it. Yeah. If not necessarily through egregious mistake, then through inaction... Mm. Then through tiny fuck-ups I couldn't possibly realize. There's a great subplot about this in the show The Good Place, where they catalog every little thing you did, but it's also the ripple effect that it has. <laughs> so you're also responsible for, if you pick this flower, well, okay, well now that flower didn't die, and then someone else can pick flowers with their mom, and mom died sad, and all kinds of shit. <laughs> like, it's this kind of thing that kind of freaks yeah. me out. Well, so that- Old Boy is very much about how something he didn't even realize, he knew he did it, he had no idea how bad it got. He yeah. had no idea well, the, what, what suffering he caused without going into, without ruining old boy. It's just this yeah. little thing you would never have known is the most important thing you've ever done. And you did it just blithely and well, haven't thought about it in 30 years. It's the most important thing to somebody else. But yeah. more than anything, it's like uh, fate is punishing you for just going through your life. Yeah. And... Uh, that's that's really strong in Old Boy. There's sort of like an operatic quality to Old Boy. It feels like yeah. a Shakespearean tragedy in a lot of ways, especially when you get to the sort of the the gory stuff at the end. Yeah, uh, DOA has that quality. This yeah. idea that he is being punished mm-hmm. for something that he didn't know he did. It's an existential film in a lot mm. of ways. Actually, I'm reminded of um, uh, I'm reminded actually of the film Phone Booth. Weirdly enough, a Larry the, Cohen the, written film directed by Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher yeah. And the premise of Phone Booth, if you don't remember it, it kind of came and went. Um, 
Colin Farrell just plays an asshole. He's cheating on his wife, and he's not a very moral businessman. Yeah, but he's, he's, he's on, not he's not evil. He's just kind of a shitty guy. And in order to talk to his mistress, he has to go to a phone booth in yeah. New York City. One of the last ones. The movie, yeah. the movie, like two thousand three. Larry there. Cohen had been working on this script, this premise for like decades. So when it was originally conceived, phone booths were common. And by the time it came out, to write a, 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 to write a, a th- intro saying like there, there's only there, a few left. There's like a, only a few left, but this guy uses yeah. one because he wants to talk to his mistress and I remember, like not leave. A phone record I remember on his cell phone. Re- I remember reading a thing with Larry Cohen where he was talking about like trying to crack this story and like one of the mm-hmm. things he tried to crack is why can't the guy leave a phone booth and it took a while to figure out there's a sniper on him so yeah. it started off with the idea of a guy can't leave a phone booth why sniper on him but once you have okay here's a guy who's got a sniper it's gonna shoot him if he leaves his phone booth then you got to figure out why mm-hmm. what did he do to deserve this and I think he said something to the effect of I finally cracked it when I realized he didn't really do anything specifically bad enough to deserve this it's just we tend to look at people who do really horrible things as the only people who deserve some kind of justice. <laughs> and we yeah. don't necessarily realize that the small things we do mm. uh, also might come around and haunt us. Well, this is a, and it's also a, this weird sort of m- moralizing that we get from a lot of thrillers and horror movies. Uh, Phone Booth uh, follows the same path as Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. where uh, Jason Voorhees is an angel of vengeance, isn't he? He's sort of mm. doing God's work. Uh, it doesn't take a very sophisticated slasher fan to recognize that the, the a, ones who are doing drugs and having premarital sex yeah. are the ones who are getting murdered first. There's a corollary yeah. somewhere. Whereas now, yeah. the the innocent uh, character, uh, colloquially known as the last girl, because mm-hmm. it's typically a female character, yeah. uh, are the ones who are spared because they're yeah. less engaged in vice. That's actually less connected to Friday the 13th than we often give it credit for, I think. But regardless, well, the, that's what we tend to think of. It, yeah. It's definitely part of the sequels and just yeah. sort of the slasher genre in general. It's a pattern yeah. started to emerge, which means the killers are on the side of justice in a, weird in a way, lot yeah. of the, these, uh, these well, it's all, slasher a, movies. A lot of horror movies are about justice being meted out disproportionately. My favorite mm-hmm. example of this is uh, the movie The Hitcher, where C. Thomas oh. Howell... <laughs> C. Thomas yeah. Howell is, is driving across country. He's delivering a car, I think, if memory serves. He's got to drive this car to whoever, whoever bought the car is. And uh, it's late at night. He's got to keep driving in order to keep himself up. He ends up picking up a hitchhiker on the side of the road. The hitchhiker's played by Rucker Hauer. And I think the very first line of dialogue in the movie, or, some, or close to it, mm-hmm. is C. Thomas Howell saying, my mother told me never to do this. And the rest of the movie is about why. <laughs> because <laughs> the hitcher is the most nightmarishly horrible human being you've mm-hmm. ever encountered what? in a movie. And he is punished a million times over for a pretty small sin. It's it's hardly even a sin. It's just yeah. not following his mother's advice. It, it, it's it's just not wise. I, I almost yeah. at the end of that movie, I almost expected C. Thomas Howell's mother to <laughs> to meet with Rutger Hauer and say, "Yeah, thanks for showing him." Showing I him think he got time. it. Now. He, he got the lesson now. Then <laughs> this is after he's like murdered people. But and... I think I think a lot of uh, the fears that get uh, exploded by a lot of horror movies and thrillers is our is our own sort of uh, fears of persecution. Yeah, you live long enough, you're gonna fuck something up. Yeah, it might be a big thing, might be a small thing, but you're going to fuck something up. And there's always going to be a part of you that thinks, man, is that going to come back and haunt me later? You know, and look at something like Fatal Attraction, maybe the ultimate example of this, where a guy who uh, he's got a he's got a happy life. He's got a good marriage, it seems. He loves Mm -hmm. his kids. Kids love him. Wife loves him. And yet when they go away for a little while, he has an affair. The million people have done it. Hell, probably billions of people have done it over the course of human history. <laughs> it's not cool. I don't necessarily approve unless you've got like a poly thing going, in which case. Well, that's, that's not cheating. That's not cheating. Yeah. That's but my point is that there, there are those exceptions. But mm. here's a guy who is cheating on his spouse and 
it blows up in his face a million times over. Like, way worse than usual. And that's the fear. That's why a lot of people find that movie to be a horror movie, whereas I find that movie to be like, Glenn Close's... Well, I was about to say... screwed over in here, isn't That's a horror movie for a man. Exactly (laughs) my point. Exactly my point. If if you're looking at it from Glenn Close's perspective, it's actually a far different kind of movie. But you could also look at DOA like that. If this guy hadn't gone off on... Without explicitly saying so basically a fuck vacation mm. like he probably wouldn't have been poisoned like that or he might have i guess but like maybe, it's, maybe, yeah, but... it's hard to say because it is kind of wrapped up around mm. him maybe that doesn't really hold a lot of water i do think it's weird though that when he goes to san francisco and he's surrounded by all these party goers surrounded by a lot of attractive women this very serious movie does something so outlandishly silly that I actually paused it to look it up to make sure I didn't get, like, because it's public domain, uh-huh. like, a version that had been screwed with. <laughs> okay. Because every single time he's in San Francisco and, like, a woman says something next to him and he turns around and looks at her and gives her the eye, hmm. there's a slide whistle. Okay. <whistles> yeah, it's sort of the wolf whistle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the soundtrack. That's really fucking weird. Because the some of the score is still going. It's still serious. Yeah. I don't know. Did they feel like it was too subtle, the idea that he was like possibly cheating on his on his girlfriend? Did he yeah. feel like we weren't getting it? It's a very odd bit. Yeah. Um Wolf whistles, I think, are like a I I think they're a naval thing. You know, if you, you recall seeing old movies yeah. where the uh the naval officer to call everyone to deck would blow a whistle. And he's usually do do do, and they use that in Star Trek. That's how I, that's how I got yeah. to know that noise. Same. They used sort of an electronic version in Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, evidently, that was like a code for ogling a lady, uh, for, uh, amongst naval officers. Yeah, and you've seen it in many uh, uh, Tex Avery cartoons where mm-hmm. a wolf would literally whistle that. Yeah. I, I, I think that, and I think the Tex Avery cartoons is where Wolf and that whistle became associated. I don't. But know. I, but I don't know the actual yeah. etymology of that. Uh, but yes, there is one on the soundtrack. I think that's just part of the movie. Yeah, it's just—it's a weirdly goofy part of the movie because the movie isn't funny. It's not—it's oh. not—it's not devoid of humor, but it's not witty. It's not like a comedy. It could be. Yeah, but there's a certain there's a certain fate where like how screwed can a guy be? Where mm-hmm. there's a certain twisted humor to that. I think of like uh, the Bill Murray movie Quick Change. Oh, where which is the, about bank thieves who can't leave town. Yeah, they just are they, stuck they in town. They commit the perfect bank robbery, and the only thing that goes wrong is the getaway, and every single thing that could possibly go wrong with the getaway does, and that's the whole movie. Hmm. It is unbelievably hilarious. <laughs> just to be... And this is one of my favorite genres of film, the world where... The film where uh, the universe is out to get you. Yeah. Like, yeah. After Hours, the Evil Dead movies are like this. <laughs> we're basically, like, it's basically... The, it, it's like Duck Amuck with uh, mm. Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny painting everything around him to try to kill him. It's That's like... Spoilers. It's... <laughs> shut up. It's, it's like 80 years old now. Like, the... But, like... I don't know. Like I get, I think that's something we can all sympathize with Mm. the idea, whether you believe in God or fate or whatever, some days just seem out to get you that, you know, whatever the deity is that day out out to drown you in misery. If there is a force driving everything Mm. in the universe today, you're in its crosshairs. You wake up and you step on something sharp. Damn it. And it gets worse. You open up your medicine cabinet and something falls out. Damn it. And then it breaks. You bend over to get it, and you bonk your head. Ah, shit. And like, by, b- before the day's out, you've set your mother on fire. Yeah. It's, yeah, just awful stuff. Um, 
the days where you you want to murder the world. There's a wonderful scene. Uh, he's being stalked by gangsters throughout a lot of this movie. The yeah. Ed Edmund O'Brien character, and uh, there's a, a wonderful scene where he's on a bus, and the gangsters are in a car, and it's just a bus. Like you can't go and go any faster. Yeah. And they're just driving next to him, waving. Sup. We'll, hey. we'll see at the next stop. It's, yeah. It only goes a couple of blocks without stop. This isn't fast. We can do this all night. It's like, <laughs> I can't get off. If I get off now, it's I look like, like an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just sort of sitting there and like you and you're laughing at him and yeah. his like horrible fate, but also like, oh shit. And you're waiting for him to sort of outwit them in some yeah. way, some witty way, how he's going to do something kind of clever. He's yeah. going to find out who it is and stop the poison somehow. Mm -hmm. That's not what this movie's about. No, this movie is not about that at all. It's kind of a Green Knight situation where it's all about trying to figure out a way. It, it, it's as though when he's told he only has a couple of days to live, mm -hmm. and this is the beginning of his story, if you think about it. Like yeah. when you, there's, this old, there's an old storytelling adage. It's not strictly true, but it's, it's generally speaking a good place to start. Um, which is you're telling the story like of your protagonist, you're telling the most interesting thing that ever happened to them. Yeah. Uh, that kind of runs in the face of the idea of sequels because the idea is every sequel has to be less interesting than the original. And I, my, my whole philosophy is it's the most interesting thing that happened to them so far. <laughs> right. but people have different stories in their lives. You live long enough, you'll have different stories. But anyway, uh, this guy lived to be, I don't know, I, forget, I don't know how old Edmund O'Brien is. He looks like the late 30s. Uh, he lived to be however long he is. Nothing interesting happened to him. He only started to live the day he started to die. Uh, there's something well, really kind of poetic about that, where it's yeah. like now that everything is like crashing down and he's got a ticking clock, he's got to get everything. He's got to wrap up all the loose ends right away. Mm. And but he's fortunately he's got one of those movie diseases where he's only going to actually like feel sick in the last 30 seconds. Yeah. So he can yeah. just run around. But this is not a, a film. And I've seen movies like this. Uh, Don't Look Up was like this. Uh, Seeking mm. a Friend for the End of the World. This is about kind of finding a good moment before your doom. Yeah. Wrapping things up, making sure you do something where your life has meaning for a few moments or you mm. say what you need to in those last few moments. This is not that either. No. This isn't about him calling his estranged father and saying, dad, I always loved you or, right. or him making good with, with like a son he had alienated. This is not about his redemption at all. No. And you're saying this is sort of the last time he felt alive. If living in a blind panic is the same as feeling alive, then sure. Well, one, but here's the deal. What, it, what is better, mm. living in a vague stupor or actually going through something? Mm. And, that's, and that's a question. That's a legit question. <laughs> uh, we, can, we can have that debate. I, I, we can. I, I suppose if, yeah, if you're actually like experiencing an extreme, even if it's an extreme bad, that's mm. better than having a dull life. One could make that argument is my mm. point. I, I'm not I, saying it's not the best argument in the world, but what I'm saying is that this guy, when you look at like the opening scenes, he's not an interesting person. No. <laughs> he's got nothing going for him. And he, at the but, very but least, but he's, he's, he's kind he, of a shit heel. He's kind yeah. of a shit heel. But at the very least, what does he gain? He gains motivation. He gains drive. All of a sudden he starts care. He doesn't really care about what he's doing day to day. Yeah. Now he really fucking cares. And whether or not he learns a viable lesson, I think we can all sort of look at that and say, like, if I found out, and there's that old saying, if you found out you were going to die in 24 hours, what would you do? Uh -huh. It's an old chestnut. It's an old conversation starter. But there may come a time where that's an actual question. <laughs> when that's an actual thing we have to deal with. Yeah. When, you know, you're, hopefully you're very, very old 
And you go to a doctor, and the doctor says, okay, unfortunately you're sick, and you only have so much time to live, and here's what it is. And then you have to figure out what you're going to do with that time. That scares the shit out of me, personally. And if I could fill that time with, like, cool gangster stuff, <laughs> I, think, I think I'd probably prefer it to just sort of... <laughs> Just sort of sitting around writing out letters to people. Like, like I don't know. Part, part of me kind of likes the idea of just being distracted. Like your, your, cool your, la- your last few acts on this earth are like yeah. jumping off of cars and yeah. punching gangsters in the jaw. Yeah. Did you notice the... Uh, oh, you probably wouldn't, though. You're not a big fan. Did you notice uh, the bit in this movie that was probably an inspiration for Blade Runner? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Okay. The climax of the movie, like the very last action bit in the movie where someone gets shot and killed and things get resolved, uh, takes place in the Bradbury building, which is where the climax of Blade Runner happens. And oh, if you okay. recall, yeah. if you recall, Blade Runner is about people who, who, in this case, replicants, robots, who are told they only have so much time to live and are doing everything they possibly can to try to find a way to live longer than they're supposed to. I don't think that's a coincidence. I, yeah, that I they go, both yeah. That they both climax at the Bradbury building? That's That's... A pretty big coincidence if that's the case. Uh, that's mean, a very D- recognizable building. DOA was widely seen. Yeah. Um, not like a block... It's one of those movies that's not a huge blockbuster, mm-hmm. but it's one that everyone seems to be kind of familiar with. I'm kind of embarrassed with myself that I had. it took me this long to see it. Same. Because it has one of those premises uh, that every sitcom, every action movie has tinkered with at one point. Everything kind of derives from DOA in a lot of ways. Uh, sort of like Lady for a Day, um, yeah. one of those familiar premises that are just used over and over again. Seven Samurai is another yeah. one. If you're unfamiliar, Seven Samurai, I think a lot of people know. It's where mm-hmm. like people who can't protect themselves hire other people to protect them, and mm-hmm. you know, and they have to do other goodness of their own heart. Lady for a Day is perhaps less well known, uh, but Lady for a Day, which is based off of a um, Frank Capra. No, it's Frank Capra. The movie I'm talking about. The movie is based off of a um, uh, who's who's the guy who did uh, wrote the Guys and Dolls. Oh, uh, Damon Runyon. Damon, it's, it's based on the Damon Runyon story. Uh, and it's about a group of, of plucky, affable gangsters mm. who decide to help an impoverished woman who has been sending all of her money to help her like daughter be raised the right way overseas and has been lying in letters and saying, I'm actually very rich and well-to-do and I, you don't have to worry about me. And now she's coming to visit for a day. And so she, all of these gangsters who basically owe her one <laughs> have to pull every fucking string in New York to make it seem like she's like the dowager empress of like mm. New York City. But everybody likes her so much that like yeah. the whole, essentially the whole town is going along with this scheme. This is a plot that has been recycled in almost every TV show ever where there's yeah. an episode where someone's like, oh, hey, listen, I wrote uh, to my parents that I'm actually the boss and... You work for me as opposed to the other way around. Can we pretend for one day just so I can save face? My mom thinks you're my girlfriend. That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's been a that's been ripped off so many so goddamn many times. times. It's amazing to go back to the start. Um, and of course, there's press. There's duplicity in comedy has been around for forever, but that specific version of the gag. Yeah. Goes back there. Anyway, so it's, yeah, it's really cool to see DOA be the film that started this. But what's interesting about it in, is honestly, in some respects, how uninteresting it is. Because the way that it just sort of moves from plot point to plot point, there's not a lot of peculiarity or flavor to it. It's just the nuts and bolts, most efficient way to do this story. Yeah. And as a result, in some respects, there's not as much to talk to. We've talked a little bit more, I think, about the films that have derived an influence from DOA than we have about DOA itself. Just because DOA is just the skeleton mm. of what this is. Yeah. The one thing in the middle of this movie that took me a second, and then I realized, oh, right. 
and it makes me really excited, and I was really, really happy to uh, to, to see it, was this was the, fe- the feature film debut of Beverly Garland. Uh, I'm used to seeing her as a blonde, and yeah. she wasn't credited as Beverly Garland no, yet. she hadn't changed her name yet. It was Beverly Hudson? Um, no, that's not right. It was, no, uh, what was it? Beverly Campbell. Beverly Campbell. Yeah. So uh, she has dark hair, and she's Beverly Campbell, but you know that energy, don't you? She's <laughs> giving so much more to that movie than anyone else. Beverly Garland, if those, those who she, do not know. She is like one of the crown jewels in the B-movie crowd. She, you know how like, there are certain actors in B-movies who you always feel like they should have been bigger A-list stars because they're just so much better and make every low-budget thing they're in infinitely better? Like A great example of this is Bruce Campbell. Yeah. He's very handsome. He's very funny. He's actually a very good actor. He never quite made like a huge career out of anything other than like supporting roles or B movie roles. Mm. But he makes every single thing he's in better. Uh that's Beverly Garland, basically in the nineteen fifties and sixties. And every single piece of crap she was in was <laughs> elevated by how what an incredibly just vivacious like serious, wonderful actor she is. She committed to everything, even bad movies she's great in. Um, she's in a movie that is really ahead of its time. It's low budget, it's clunky, it's Roger Corman. It was made over a weekend, but it's really ahead of its time regardless, called The Gunslinger. Yeah. Where uh, Beverly Garland plays uh, the wife of a, of a sheriff in a Wild West town in the frontier. And uh, he is killed. And they're waiting for the new sheriff to show up. And it's going to be like a week or two. And in the interim, no one else wants to be sheriff, so she'll do it. And everyone's like, a woman sheriff? And she's great at it. <laughs> and she it's actually like this very clearly proto-feminist Western that is anchored almost entirely, because a lot of the movie is cheap and you know obviously rushed. It's anchored on her performance. Yeah. And she kills it. It's an MST3K movie, but you could watch it without MST3K, and you'd see like... This is this is ahead of its time and a lot of its attitudes she, and tone. She's good. The yeah. script is awful. The no, but the story is, is crap, fine. The story is fine. The, story the, is fine. the dialogue is shit. Yeah. The actual story being told is perfectly fine. Yeah, and it was you know one of those movies that's clearly made for really cheap. Like yeah. the camera is on somebody before their cue is given, so they're just sort of standing there and then they mm-hmm. start walking. Um, the the Beverly Garland film I love is is the one they love on Mystery Science Theater, and that's It Conquered the World. Yes. Uh, where she plays the wife of some guy who's been... Uh, Lee Van Cleef. Lee, yeah, Lee Van Cleef, who has been uh, conspiring with an alien, mm-hmm. and this alien has been sending out these little bats that implant people's necks with mind control devices, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't see the alien for the longest time, and it's a good reason why, because it's a really stupid-looking it's a alien. really stupid-looking <laughs> monster. It's a terrible it, monster. It's, it's, it's a dunce Frank Zappa wrote a real. song about how shitty that monster looks. <laughs> it's called Cheapness. Like, you should, you should listen to it. It's great. They're being invaded by a giant Vlasic pickle. Yeah. Uh, and one of my favorite movie moments just in mm. general in all yeah. of cinema is when she finally confronts that stupid looking thing yeah because she figures out what's going on she's smart she's mm-hmm. smarter than Lee Van Cleef she's smarter well, than Lee all Van, the other characters Lee Van, the flaw in Lee Van Cleef's plan is that he wants to help this thing take over the world and they do but he wants to make sure a couple of people know he did it because yeah. otherwise yeah. it's just going to be these mind controlled zombies so it's the people who like he's close to that he wants to lord it over including wow. his wife Beverly Garland uh, 
that have to save the whole fucking world. And so Beverly Garland just like picks she, up a fucking shotgun. She gets a shotgun, shotgun and charges off to the cave where it's heading out. Not, not with the army. No, they're just like, oh, that's it. I'm taking care of this fucking thing. And she charges into the cave with the shotgun in her arm, just looks at the thing and just like puts her head on her, ha- her hand on her head and says, you're hideous. And just starts blasting away. <laughs> Fuck yes, Beverly Garland. Beverly Garland, what a goddamn champion. I just absolute... Absolutely, just seriously, one of my favorite actors, uh, and in part, unless she did a lot of TV, she was on My Three Sons for years. Uh, she was on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman for a long time. Like yeah. she's, she's got a long career, but she never had the good role. She never had that never one had the breakout a, the role. A-list role. They never. Yeah. Th- this is the this is the kind of actor who like. And I know you can't talk about him in great detail, but like one of the things that Quentin Tarantino has always done best throughout his career is find actors who like were always amazing but never had a great role and gave them a great role. Yeah. Like he gave Rob Forster an Oscar nomination for Jackie Brown. Like that was a gift to Rob Forster. Yeah. Like thank you for Alligator. Like that was what that no, was. That, that like, was a, a, what a lot of the writing around Kurt Russell and Death Proof. Kurt Russell and Death Proof. Yeah. Uh, John Travolta in Pulp Fiction. His career was dead. Yeah. At the, yeah. Like, I remember reading an interview with John Travolta around the shortly afterwards, and he said that was the only script I had on my desk. Wow. People had stopped sending me things. That was the only mm. script anyone was interested in me for, and fortunately, so he was going to take it regardless. <laughs> and it just happened to be Pulp Fiction. Yeah. But like, you, but this is the kind of person who like deserved that like late character actor resurrection, and, and, and yeah, never look, quite got it. I'm looking over some of Beverly Garland's uh, filmography here, and she was in uh, the Neanderthal Man, yeah. Killer Leopard. Uh, swamp women, you know, mm-hmm. exploitation kind of schlock. A lot of exploitation schlock, yeah. yeah. I forgot that Gunslinger and It Conquered the World were the same year, 1956. Yeah, she, uh, she was in the original version of Not of This Earth. Oh, there you is, go. is another one of her more notable movies. There you go. Because um, uh, she's she's the lead yeah. in that one. She also starred in, she started in a series, which I actually have around here somewhere. It's really long. But um, uh, she starred in a TV series called Decoy. A.K.A. Policewoman Decoy. <laughs> and it was the first American TV series where the protagonist was a female cop. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, it's not as well-remembered or regarded today, but it is significant. So we're going to make sure we give credit. Anyway, this is Beverly Garland's first film role, and it's not an insubstantial role. At first, it seems like she's just a receptionist he's got to talk to, and then we keep coming back to that character over and over again, and you realize she knows more than you realize, and maybe he's a part of it, but no, maybe she's a part of something else, and she's giving maybe the best performance in the movie. I mean, yeah, by far. Yeah, I I think so. I think... I think Edmund O'Brien is actually playing the role just right. He's fine. Um, He's good. I, there's there's a danger for this kind of role to play make them too boring, just sort of that protagonist syndrome where they don't actually yeah. have a lot of quirks. That he's kind of a shit heel gives him a little bit more character. Yeah. That he is not treating people well. That he actually yeah. has a lot of flaws. That he actually does overreact to certain things. That he lets his emotions get in the way. I think. Mm allows the character to sort of grow and become a lot more human uh, and give us actually a lot more sympathy for him. Sure. Uh, if he has flaws and is being punished for what an audience might perceive as being kind of minor flaws or lesser sins. Yeah. Sins nonetheless. Yeah, he's not, but, he's not great, but he's not the worst yeah, human being you've ever met either. Yeah. He's not like murdering people in the street. He's yeah. just kind just, of a, just kind a of shitty a, boyfriend. Yeah. He's a shitty boyfriend. We, because of that thing we were talking about, how we kind of, are hard on ourselves and see ourselves mm-hmm. as maybe committing all these sins and have, you know, yeah. some, somewhere our minor sins are all being compiled. Yeah. Mostly in our minds, but also, you know, some, we're going to be punished in the afterlife for all of these little things. Yeah. Um, that's something we can all relate to, isn't it? Yeah, so exactly. if he's kind of a dick, 
we see ourselves in him a little bit more. Yeah. Rather than if he were completely normal or even virtuous. Exactly. No, I agree entirely. Mm. Um, Pamela Britton plays his girlfriend, Paula. Pamela Britton is so into him that I kept expecting the twist to be that all of this spy shit with radioactivity was like a fake out. Uh-huh. And it was actually oh, just, just, she, she just killed him for being him a lech. Oh, okay. She just, she, she like followed him to San Francisco, saw him like drinking and carousing with a bunch of different ladies and just decided to kill him. <laughs> like, sure. That would have been a perfectly valid ending yeah. to the movie. It's not what happens, but like that would have been fine. Yeah, she, um, she had hardly any a career. She was on My Favorite Martian. Um, but uh, that that's sort of like her big claim to fame. Yeah. And then, of course, there's Neville Brand, who's this weird serial killer. Who's like working for one of the main bad guys when we finally meet like some of the main bad guys. And, and he's like the one henchman who's like, he's not like someone you can trust with the day-to-day shit. He just really likes killing. And you'd probably recognize him just because he has one of those faces. Yeah, he was in Birdman of Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. He was in Stalag 17. If you've never seen Riot in Cell Block 11, that's one of the best like hard-boiled mm-hmm. uh, prison movies like I've ever seen. Like it's yeah. really just... It was made by uh, people who were actually like in prison. Like they were actually like former prisoners who were in the movie. And when they like came back to like shoot it, the guards were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What the fuck? <laughs> You're back!" <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember seeing him in Killdozer. Um, oh my god, he wasn't yeah, Killdozer. He was in Killdozer. And, and he, was, he was in the original That Darn Cat. Um, Killdozer, by the way, if any movie needs to get remade, it's Killdozer. It's about <laughs> a bulldozer that gains sentience and tries to kill people. Hmm. How is that boring? How did you make that? It's <laughs> literally called Killdozer, and um, you made it boring. For the love of they're, God, they're try- someone remake Killdozer. They're trying to like put it like down to earth and make it gritty and kind of realistic, yeah. but it's still called Killdozer. Also, again, it's a bulldozer. It goes at like five yeah. miles an hour. Like you're not really yeah, it's not speeding around. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do. But like seriously, you can do better than that movie. What what if it gets off the island? It's on an island for fuck's sake. It's trapped. It is. It's on an island. Swim away. Just walk away slowly. Yeah. Go out into the... Go... How tall is it? Swim out until the water is that deep and then swim back. (laughs) Yeah, he was in Kansas City Confidential. Yeah, that's a good movie. um, He played Butch Cassidy in a movie I haven't seen uh, before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I mean, that was a real person. Yeah. So, like, yeah, that that was all fair game, yeah. Anyway, so, so yeah, he he had a a long career playing a lot of supporting roles and stuff, and yeah. he's really easily recognizable. Yeah, but anyway, um, DOA. I'm really glad I saw DOA. This is one of those movies. I think because it was so available, I never really felt like I had yeah, to see it. It's um because it's in public domain for so long. Yeah, Coppola's film Dementia Thirteen is in yeah. the public domain. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's, I, I could t- I could tune it in on YouTube. It's on YouTube yeah. and. Uh, yeah, did, I, did he do a director's cut of that? I don't think he did. I thought I heard maybe, maybe he, was he did. Pl- I, I don't know if that was a joke or not. I know because Coppola is one of those people who spent like most of the last like twenty years just re-editing his old shit. And yeah, by the, yeah. it's like, oh no, no, this is what I meant. And making garbage like Twixt. Um, yeah, but yeah, when a film sort of I no know in two thousand seventeen. Oh, he, he did. He did, a, he did a, a director's cut Dementia of Dementia Thirteen. This really ultra low budget movie he did for Roger Corman, which I've only seen the original version. Um, it was not very good. I guess I'm curious to see the director's cut. But, uh, I can't imagine how much better it could be. I know, I know what the, footage they had to work with. That was the deal with uh, George Romero and Night of the Living Dead because yeah. of that 
error they made during production. It fell yeah. into the public domain immediately. Yeah, they forgot to put the copyright notice on the film itself, and as a result, it was immediately in the public domain. It, it was a big hit, but I think the reason it was so widely seen is because it was in the public domain. Theaters could just yeah. book it, not it, have to pay it would be It would be on late-night television yeah. constantly. And so I think DOA became, probably helped its visibility in the long yeah. run. Yeah. So a, a, a lot of the popularity of Night of the Living Dead Oh, it's probably owed to the fact that yeah. it was public domain. It's a Wonderful but, Life was the same thing. It yeah. fell into public domain because It's a Wonderful Life was not a huge hit. It was mm. not for a couple of Oscars, but then quickly forgotten about. The studio didn't give a shit about it, and so they just sort of let it let it lapse. Mm. And then they started showing it on TV in the holidays. Oh, we have a holiday movie with James Stewart. I don't know, throw it on. And they would throw it on a lot, and people started realizing, wait, this is one of the best movies anyone has ever made. And then the Paramount was like, oh, um we buy that back? And then the government's like, sure, I guess that makes sense. And it turns out, yeah, you can buy things out of the public domain again. Yeah, that which, doesn't um, feel right. Was it Patty and Mildred um, um, Jenkins? The, the women who bought Happy Birthday. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Wild. Uh, uh, but yeah, I think the DOA kind of was able to proliferate because it's so widely available. Yeah. And, but ironically that availability has kept it off of my radar yeah it's like okay it's there i can always see yeah, it there's never going to be a chance Here's the thing. i'll never not be able to say doa doa is great yes it is it's an excellent movie i think people should watch this because it's a, a taut thriller with an interesting premise mm -hmm. interesting characters and a good story yeah and some good performances besides i feel like uh you'll go ahead and see night of the living dead Okay, get a better DVD. Yeah, Criterion don't, has a Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, it looks great. See that one, the one that's been really cleaned up. Don't see, watch the yeah. ones where they re-edited it. No, they re-edited it, it in 3D or, or, it or they or animated it. Yeah. Like they just animated over the cells. It mm. sounds like a, a fun idea. It's yeah. not. Well, and that, that's all George Romero trying to put the copyright back on it. If he sells an alternate version that he well, owns, then he the, makes No, the copyright it. on it was, uh, was when they remade it. That was yeah, when they were trying yeah. to get it back, yeah. But Night of the Living Dead is a great movie. Yes, Carnival of Souls is in the public domain. Yes, it is. See the Criterion version of that? That's a great movie. Uh, just because it's in the public domain and there's no finance involved yeah. doesn't mean that there's a deficiency with the movie. But, we are but what it means is that no one's probably going to make a big deal out of a re-release of it, which is why it's yeah, easy to yeah. overlook them. It's, it's, it's easy to overlook, but at the same time, they're widely available. So yeah. look up what films are in the public domain and consider that... Mm -hmm. These are works of art that people put a lot of uh, heart mm -hmm. and energy into, and some of them are actually really well-made movies. Yeah. A lot of it's crap. Well, there's a lot of crap. But there's a lot of crap that's re-released and has a lot of money, the too. The Stanley so. Donen film Charade. Is, that's in the public Grant. domain, yeah. That is in public domain. That's a classic right mm -hmm. there. I'm looking right now to see if there are any other uh, noteworthy okay. public domain films that mm -hmm. uh, are worth... Uh, Debbie Does Dallas, public domain. Uh, Is it really? Uh, according to Wikipedia, I don't know. All right. Um, uh, Stanley Kubrick's Fear and Desire, public domain. Uh, the Front Page, the original film uh, that she's oh, from the His 30s, Girl Friday. Yeah. That is public which, domain. Which I like better than uh, uh, than His Girl Friday. Ed Wood's Glen or Glenda, which having finally actually really watched it and done some research on it, I will actually go to bat for. <laughs> Is public yeah, domain. Yeah. There's, there's the 1939 Gulliver's on Travels, one of the first animated feature films in America. Oh, that's excellent. Um, His Girl Friday, public domain. Reefer Madness, not a good movie. No. Uh, irresponsible, but wow, is it fun to watch? <laughs> Especially if you're high. Well, I wouldn't know. Yeah. I haven't watched it high, but uh, the Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price version of I Am Legend, public domain. Yeah, very, very good film. Nosferatu mm. is in the public domain. Michael uh, Curtiz's Life with mm. Father with William Powell. 
wonderful, wonderful comedy. Yeah, ha- Hakson, Witchcraft Through the Ages. Um, mm-hmm. The original Love Affair, upon which An Affair to Remember was based. That's public domain. Mm. A lot of the old Popeye cartoons. Road no, to no Bali, kidding. Captain Kidd. Uh, mm. uh, My the, Man Godfrey, the, one of the funniest um, movies of the 30s. Oh, there you go. Public domain. Uh, oh, um, Marlon Brando's sole directorial credit, One Eye to Jax. I think Doctor X is also in the public domain. It might be on my Universal, actually. Um, but okay, we'll see that one film either way. I really love Doctor X. Yeah, uh, yeah. Popeye the Sailor meets Sinbad the Sailor. That is a really interesting animated short because <laughs> yeah. they use like actual like uh, like physical backgrounds for it. So it's, like mm. it's really quite neat. Um, I'm looking over right here. It, so there's there's, other, there's, like, there's a noteworthy there's a salt of the that, earth. Especially right now, we have this tendency to uh, tie finance and financial success into a film's quality. Yeah, uh, that's why we have so many armchair executives out there. These yeah. pundits who think that they can give uh, studios good advice on how to protect their brand and not talk about a movie at all. Uh, yeah, this idea that they they're being proven right by how financially successful a movie is mm-hmm. in terms of film's quality. Uh, it must be good. If it made a if, billion if it made dollars. A, yeah, if it made a billion dollars, that's proof positive that it's a good film. Uh, that uh, as a critic, I can frankly say that is complete bullshit. Yeah, uh, they have almost nothing to do with each other. Hardly, a, hardly a thing. Yeah, hardly a thing. Yeah, are good movies successful? Yeah, a lot yeah. of the, the top grossing movies of all time. Some of them are quite good. Yeah, quite a few of them are quite good. Quite a few of the mm. of the least successful movies of all time are quite are also good. Quite good. Yeah, yeah. It's gotten very it's, little to it's do with all, anything. It's all a fluke of how financing works, mm-hmm. and I it's think how good we, your marketing is, it's your timing. Can, yeah. yeah, it's a bunch of shit that's nothing to do and with anything. You, and a lot of critics were concerned when a lot of films were being sold, like whole libraries were being sold to streaming, and now people had access to. Uh, a huge number of films for like $7 a month. It sort of yeah. devalued film. It does. Because Each individual film is worth less now, isn't and, it? And because we're starting to think of films as consumer products, as something that is cost efficient, how much thrill do you get for your dollar? And as such, the idea of liking a public domain film is seen as kind of gauche or low mm. rent. Anybody can see that. Yeah. Anybody can see it. Isn't that great? Yeah. That you can just it's, watch it's, it without having to pay anything? Yeah, I get it. That you yeah. can own it and display it and exhibit it anywhere you want without yeah. having to pay anything? Yeah, that's... And listen, listen, listen. I It's it's tricky because you also want to make sure that the people who work their asses off yeah. to make these things, that they get the money they deserve. And you want to try to find the right balance between making sure everything is available to everyone for a reasonable uh, rate or reasonable level of difficulty in terms of reaching it, um, you don't want things to disappear just because people can't afford them. Mm-hmm. You don't want things to be priced out of uh, the ability to watch them yeah. for a lot of people. You want you want access. Everyone should be able to at least potentially have access to everything. But you also want to make sure that we're not just putting. You know, there is also something to be said for. Yeah, but people make a living doing this. People spend yeah. their whole lives, make huge investments. I'm not talking about the big, giant, billion-dollar corporations which can afford to. I'm talking about the people who are working their asses off and putting putting their lives on the line for a lot of these movies. You don't want to screw them over. Well, I, I know finding the right balance uh, between that and the streaming era has been really, really tricky. Especially in the streaming era, where everything's vertically integrated. Everything's vertically integrated, but also like you know, if you were going to rent a movie from Blockbuster, there's like a four dollar flat rate. That's like how much mm-hmm. you would get from that would potentially be. I, mean, I realize it's not cut and dry, but let's for the sake of simplifying it, let's say a, a movie ticket costs twelve dollars at a certain point in time. Yeah, 
if you had a percentage of the, the, the net. Sorry, gross, not net. Net is a fantasy. Gross. You say you have a percentage of the gross. Okay, I got $1 off of that if you have the most incredible deal ever. Uh, but now it's like, okay, I spend $10 to subscribe to the streaming service. That streaming service gives me access to thousands of movies. So is each one of those worth a thousand, one, one, one thousandth of $10? How much does that person get if you watch mm. their movie? It just starts getting really muddled, and it's it's a yeah, I, shitty situation. I know a big a big part of what's in the public domain. First of all, there's a lot of labyrinthine copyright laws about how things get to stay within the public domain, and some things aren't. Uh, but I know that a lot of, you're t- talking about getting people getting their fair cut. And I know yeah. a big deal with uh, copyright is it has to be like a certain number of years after the death of the creator. Yeah. So like that, that's less of an issue. Yeah, it's yeah. they're they're going to be long dead by the time it enters the public. Domain. Exactly. That's the idea. So, yeah, but but we're also at a point now where mm. those kinds of ancillary rights could be the sort of thing that are keeping whole families going. Yeah. So it's not a matter of mm. well, you know, this person died and they left no next of kin, mm. so it's no harm, no foul, there's actually an issue where, okay, we actually are taking money away from people. Mm-hmm. It's, it just gets complicated, and it's, there's, no, there's, there's no, no perfect solution to it, unfortunately. Which sucks. The last film to enter the public domain, I, I think before this, it was like uh, something, it was like, uh, plan, I think, not Plan 9, um, it was a film from like the, er, the early 60s. Mm. It was like the most recent film to enter the public domain. Except for one in 2008, oh. an animated film called Sita Sings the Blues, oh. which uh, was forced into the public domain over like copyright issues over the music. Hmm. And there was some sort of uh, like legal trouble. I, I don't know the actual details, but I know that there's a 2008 film called Sita Sings the Blues hmm. where the filmmaker actually is trying to fight to get some money for it. So okay. if you're going to see the film Sita Sings the Blues, you can probably watch it for free. You distribute it for free. But uh, be sure to buy some of the merch because yeah. the creator put out the merch and the money goes to them. Yeah. Uh, in that case, yeah. Uh, the, You're doing what you can. Who is the director? Um, I don't know. Uh, Nina Paley is the director's name. Okay. Uh, anyway, we kind of got off in the weeds there. Uh, anyway, do you like good movie? Uh, moving on. Uh, next time on Critically Reclaimed, we had a request, and it was a good request, for a streaming service we hadn't actually touched before, and that is YouTube. And not like the YouTube where everyone just uploads shit. YouTube actually does have movies like that are can, officially you licensed. You can, you can rent licensed movies yeah. from YouTube. And a, but a lot of them are also free with commercials, much like uh, Tubi has free with commercials or Crackle mm. has free with commercials. Uh, so we decided to take a look at their offerings. And we decided that we were going to uh, use uh, YouTube's free licensed, officially licensed movies for our next poll. So if you're not, a patron... Not the bootlegged films, of which the there are plenty on YouTube. Of which there are plenty, and frankly, a lot of them are doing great work archiving stuff that is not available anywhere else. And thank you for that. If you're just pirating shit, they will have another conversation. That's a different conversation. Uh, but uh, in any case, if you're a patron over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, you can vote for one of the following films. Uh, a Bridge Too Far, a massive World War II epic... Uh, a chorus line, a massive World War II epic. It's a musical about auditioning for a musical. Hang 'em high. A World War II epic. <laughs> it's going to do the musical bit. Uh, no, it's a Clint Eastwood Western. Uh, and the Chuck Norris action film Lone Wolf McQuaid. Those are your options. Choose wisely. <laughs> we will review the next one next week. Um, that is it for Critically Reclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, very special thank you to all of our patrons who voted. Uh, again, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Even $1 a month gets to vote. 
for critically reclaimed. Very, 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 very low uh, investment for high rewards. Because we'll watch the movie you want us to watch. Um, we also have a lot of other stuff over at the Patreon. Uh, we have a weekly show. We're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. A monthly show. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We just dropped a new one of those. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We just dropped a commentary track for one of our funny, one of the movies Whitney and I think is the funniest ever made, Brain Donors. Uh, we just did a big uh, hangout with some of our patrons. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. So thank you to all of our patrons for keeping the show afloat. We wouldn't be here without you. I do like having those hangouts. As those well. are fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I get to... Put faces to some of the names. Yeah, a, a lot of these people we've seen at the hangouts have been subscribers for a while. So thank you yeah. for that. They're, they're, you're like family, and it yeah, just means so a lot to us. Get yeah. to get to see see them all at least once a month. Yeah, um, and of course, uh, we're if you want to chime in, you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode, uh, feel free to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email and answer it on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We're also on Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry. We have a P.O. Box if people oh, prefer oh, yeah. that. If, yeah. if you want to mail us an actual physical letter, go ahead and do that. It is a P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Make out the letter to the Critically Claims Network or one of us if it's to one mm-hmm. of us personally. Uh, we'll both get it. Yeah, we, we both have keys. We do. It's fun. <laughs> um, and of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Thanks again once for. Uh, <clears throat> thanks once again, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours. Wait, no, that's not how this, this one a, ends. This is anyway, the, this goodbye. Is the one. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>